It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. I'm in Los Angeles to talk with a gentleman who has a connection with a lot of musical groups who have performed in Las Vegas over the years, as well as some of the songs they sing. My guest, songwriter, producer, and lecturer Steve Barry has worked with Barry McGuire, Johnny Rivers, Three Dog Night, The Grassroots, The James Gang, Steppenwolf, Jim Croce, Rufus, Steely Dan, Tommy Rowe, and The Four Tops, and many more. And you can reach him, that is Steve Barry, B-A-R-R-I, steveberry at att.net. And Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. You have an interesting background because it's a mix of musical avenues that you've traveled and musical people that you've traveled with in different ways and in different configurations. At what point did you know you wanted to get into this kind of racket? I use the word racket affectionately. Yeah, racket is a good word. Um, <laughs> basically, I, I, you know, I was always into music. I grew up in New York um, as a young eight, nine, ten years old until, until I moved out to the West Coast. My mother took me to a lot of Broadway shows because I insisted on it. I always loved the music from, from shows. So I was kind of brought up with music. The first time I think I ever heard music live was at the Radio City Music Hall in New York. And I knew then I'd want to be involved in music. I just love music. And, and my, our, my family was pretty musical as well. We always played current songs around the house, and, and my mother played piano. I basically always listened to the radio. And um, I, I enjoyed listening to all the top songs of the day. And when we moved out to the West Coast, to Los Angeles from New York, I was about 11, 11 years old. Eventually, I, I worked at a record store for about three or four years. And my dream was to be a disc jockey. So I was basically working at that. That was going to be, that's what I wanted to do. And in those days, there were actually discs. Exactly. <laughs> jockey, as yes, to I mean, digital I, you know, files. when I started, when I started listening to records, it was set the old '78s because I remember as a young kid, you had a favorite record and you put it down wrong, whatever, it would crack and it would break and it yeah, would shellac. destroy me. I know. <laughs> so when '45s came out, I was very happy about that. <laughs> and then '33 and a third. Uh, of course, yeah, exactly. But at that early age, did you know? What part of the music world do you want to get involved in? In no. other words, as a musician, a writer, a producer, a composer? I basically wanted to just play. When, when rock and roll came in, you know, I, I was attracted to that music. You know, I was the right age for it. So I decided that, uh, you know, I just loved the music. And working at a record store, I listened to the A and B side of every new record that came out. So I knew all, I knew all this stuff. I knew all the writers' names. And working at this record store, the more I started hearing some of these songs, I started thinking to myself, you know, I could write these kinds of songs. You don't have to be a genius to write, you know, I'm walking, yes, indeed, I'm talking about you and me. I mean, you know, this is pretty simple stuff. And a lot of songs, I was very impressed with the music of um, the songs of Lieber and Stoller at the time. And they were writing all these, I knew that these were two white Jewish kids from Los Angeles. In fact, Jerry Lieber had worked at the same record store that I worked at. What was the um, name of the store? 
uh, Nordy's Records. It was on Fairfax Avenue across the street from Cantor's, which was like, you know, big Jewish neighborhood. Up the road from CBS Television. So. Yes, yes. Uh, in fact, many times people that would be working at CBS at Television City would come. We had right next to our store was this Hungarian restaurant. And of course, Cantor's was across the street. Many times they would walk through our store, park in the back, which they weren't supposed to do. I got to meet a lot of celebrities from Mel Torme to just about anybody that was, you know, appearing at CBS working over there. So that, that was a lot of fun. But I, I just started as a hobby writing songs on, on a four-string guitar that I had. Basically, I, I knew how to play ukulele. And it started as a hobby. And eventually, it, um, some of the songs that I wrote, uh, I submitted to uh, a publisher. And Eventually, there was some interest in, in that, and I, and I thought to myself, well, maybe this is something that, that I could do. So I started uh, writing, getting more serious about writing you know, popular songs. When did you know that you not necessarily made it professionally, but that you had cracked it into the professional world? Well, I did a demo of one of my songs with a girl by the name of Carol Connors who went to Fairfax High School, the same high school I went to. She was the lead singer on a record that was a big hit at one point called To Know Him Is To Love Him by the Teddy Bears. Phil Spector. Phil Spector's record. So we did a little demo together, and a gentleman in L.A. by the name of Russ Regan, who, was, um, who went on to become the president of Uni Records, at that time he was an independent promotion man. You know, I played him the demo because he would come into the store once in a while to give us records. He would want us to push the records kind of with the kids at the school, and then when the radio stations would call to tell the radio stations this record was getting response, you know, so it was that kind of a, that kind of a situation. But he liked this record. He said, I'm going to put it out on my old independent label. And he managed to get it on the, the number one station here in Los Angeles at the time, which was KFWB. And uh, Lou Adler, who was then the, running the publishing company of uh, Screen Gems, Columbia, music, the West Coast uh, division of that company, uh, he heard the record and wanted to put it out on, on Dimension Records, that was their label, and he signed me to a publishing deal, and that was kind of, the, that was the start of it all. It just all kind of exploded from that point on. Lou Adler is a very big name in the business. Did you look at him as a mentor or just an inspirational kind of guy? Uh, absolute mentor. I didn't even know who he was when, you know, I first met him. And then I realized that, um, you, you know, that he had been uh, already an important force here on the West Coast by producing records with Jan and Dean and, and working with, um, wrote, uh, he worked with Sam Cooke, you know, he and Herb Alpert wrote Wonderful World, you know, which was a big hit with Sam. So he was already kind of a, a, a big shot. And basically, I, he was my mentor. You know, he, he took me on, and, and just about everything I learned about the record business, I learned from him. Did you find that you turned it around down the road to help other people as well because of the help you received well, from Lou Adler? Sure. When, when, eventually, I was signed to Dunhill Records. This was a, to Screen Gems, to this publishing company. And within six months, we, we, my partner, Phil Sloan and I, P.F. Sloan, we had written uh, songs. That, some of them were local hits, and one of them was, you know, charted nationally called Kick That Little Foot Sally Ann by Round Robin. So we were having some little success. 
Lou decided to leave Screen Gems and start his own label. And he took Phil Sloan and myself and his secretary at the time, who's been my wife for over 50 years, Julie, he took us all over to this new company he was starting called Dunhill Records. At first, it was just really, I think, Truesdale Music was a publishing company. So we went with, with Lou. And, you know, within a couple of years, we were the, like the hottest label around. You know, we, we had Eva Destruction, which was the song we wrote. Barry Maguire. Barry Maguire's record. We had signed him. Barry Maguire, while we were recording this album with him, because Sloan and I were writing all the songs, Barry said, can I, I got some friends sleeping in the car in the alley. You know, can they come in? Can they sing backgrounds? It was, it was that time, wasn't it? It was that time, yeah. So I said, bring them in. We'll listen to them. I said, you know, but, I, you know, we'll wait till Lou gets here. So he brings in the mamas and the papas, and they sing California Dreamin' and, and um, uh, Monday, Monday, those early songs. And, and we didn't know what to think other than this is too good to be true. So we called Lou. Lou came down. He immediately signed them. And so now we have even destruction, the mamas and papas, that starts to explode. Sloan and I are writing a lot of hit songs, and all of a sudden we're this major, major label. But then at some point, after a couple of years, Lou decided to leave again. You know, he, they, they, sold the, the, they sold Dunhill to ABC. And I thought I would be going with Lou because I was always, you know, he was always my mentor. I was always with him. But, but Lou said, you know, I, I can't take you. You still have two more years on your contract. And ABC, the reason they bought the company is because they bought you guys. So well, That's a compliment. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it was very nice. But I just felt kind of abandoned. You know, I didn't know what I could do without Lou around. He had always given us, you know, everything that had happened to us. You know, we, we had this number one hit with Johnny Rivers, Secret Agent Man. That wouldn't have happened had it not been for Lou, because Lou was producing Johnny Rivers, and he said there's an opportunity to write a song for a television show, so why don't you guys, and, and at the time when he said the name of the show was Danger Man, it's about a secret agent, you know, we balked at it. I said, oh, Lou, please don't make us do this. It's, you know, it's, it's Very terrible. popular song. Terrible, and it, yeah, it became one of the, you know, the biggest uh, hits we had. So um, when he left, he said, uh, you know, you're gonna, you'll take over my, my position. You're going to be the, the new head of A&R, the, the A&R man, artist and repertoire. Um, For our audience who may not know, what, is, what does an artist and repertoire man do? So basically, do? In those days, it was mostly men, but now it's both men and women. Right. A&R people at that point, as it is today, basically your job is to look for artists to sign to the label, or if there are artists on, la on the label, and of course back then it wasn't as self-contained a business as it is now, so you would look for songs. You would go to all the publishers to Tin Pan Alley or whatever, try to find songs for your artists to sing. So when, when Lou left, I didn't really know what the heck I was doing. I was only early 20s. And so they told me, just go out, see some groups, and sign some groups. And I was fortunate enough, or I had good enough taste, that the first group I signed was a group called Steppenwolf. And then we signed Three Dog Night. And we had already, uh, Sloan and I, we were producing this grassroots group. So all of a sudden, you know, things were just exploding. What's interesting, too, that all of those names you mentioned, and in my introduction, I also mentioned them, are connected with Las Vegas in a lot of different ways. Even to this day, a lot of these groups perform in Las Vegas. Absolutely, yeah. And have fans that are not just the original fans, but also their kids and maybe right. their grandkids at this point. Right. And it's, it's striking that 
the groups and the songs have that enduring quality about them, and endearing quality in a lot of cases too, that generates that loyalty over decades. Can you tell us what you think that reason is, or do you, from your point of view? You know, I don't know the reason other than people, because I, I do lectures on, and I, and I teach courses on the 50s and 60s and 70s, and whenever I play the music or, or talk about some of the groups or whatever, people say that they just, they relive their, you know, what's the, 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 the catchphrase, the soundtrack of our lives. It is, you know, people, when you get older, you know, uh, Mel Brooks's famous line is when he goes to the goes to the refrigerator and opens the door. He forgets what the hell he's, he went to the, the refrigerator for. He said, but he can remember every lyric of every song he's ever heard. Most people feel that way. There's something about music that, that gets inside of you, and you relate to those songs, and you just don't forget them. You remember everybody can sing along with any of those old songs. Of course, so, Mel Brooks, when he opens the refrigerator, even though he can't remember why he opened the door, the light's on, so he performs. <laughs> exactly. So, Mel is always performing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it works out. It is. There's something about melodies and lyrics. Uh, as an example, I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but if a certain song is on the radio or someone's playing it or I hear it in the elevator, I can sing yeah, along it, with it. Very badly, by the way, but well, still. Well, it doesn't matter. Right. You know, it, what matters is those things, you know, just stay with you. You know, there's something about the memory that involves melody, you know, and, and how that reminds you of, of lyrics. I mean, you know, you may not remember every lyric of a song, but things come back to you, you know, whereas, you know, we always say, I can't, you know, I can't remember anybody's name. Uh, two days after I meet him, I'm always, my wife and I, Usually it takes the both of us to come up with a name. I can maybe come up with the first name or the first letter, then she'll run. Right. So it takes two of us now to remember somebody's name. Well, you work as a team, so that works out very well. All right. It's, that's funny. Have you thought about writing an autobiography or memoir? Uh, people always ask me about that. And I have a title for you. Yeah. Because you gave it to me earlier. It's not brain surgery. <laughs> Even though it is, but well, you, you, you said it, it wasn't brain surgery when you were young and looking at how people are writing these songs. Right. So that yeah. might be a good title for yeah. it. Or it's Steve Barry, or who knows? You could do yeah. something. So when you started to have this momentum, did groups come to you or seek you out as opposed to you having to find groups and put them together with songs? Well, yeah, once, you know, at, at first it was just finding groups. And, and with artists like Three Dog Night and Grassroots, not so much Steppenwolf, because they, they were pretty much self-contained. But my job, the important things, they, they didn't write. You know, this was all pre-1964, pre-Beatles. So we there had were no a, such things generally as singer-songwriters. It was either... They didn't, they didn't really exist. Right. You know, if you found a great singer, fine. We'll, you know, there are great songwriters around. We'll, we'll find songs for you, you know. But um, that was the main thing that we had to do. I mean, of course, there were the... Paul Ankers, who I, who I fortunately got to work with, who was a genius, um, and, and others, some others like him, Buddy Holly, some of those early rock and rollers that did write their own songs. But for the most part, to be a star, uh, you know, the Fabians, the Frankie Avalons, the um, Bobby Rydells, they didn't write their songs. You know, it was the time of, you know, selling to young teenage girls, so you only had to be a young, good-looking teenage guy. Other people would write the songs. And it was the same thing with many of these groups that we signed. So my job was to go out and really find songs. I, I had to pretty much stop writing songs because I didn't have the time anymore. 
And also I felt it would be awkward for me to tell any, an act on our label, this is, a, this is a hit song, you gotta do it, and I'm the writer of it. So I said, you know, I gotta stop writing. And so I found other songwriters um, uh, that I mentored just the way Lou mentored me. I would give them a title or an idea, and I said, you know, uh, Feedlock Knight needs a song, or The Grassroots needs a song, or Mama Cass, you know, we're, we're doing a record, a record with her, we need a song for her. And so, you know, I would keep involved and write some, you know, some lines in those songs, but, you know, just wouldn't put my name on them. I was producing those records, and yeah, I didn't Sort care. of a conflict of interest in that it, sense. It, it, it would look that way. Yeah. I mean, today, producers are hired Based, based on the fact that they write the material and are going to produce it. But it was just different back then because I had to deal with maybe 30 or 40 different artists on the label. That's a lot. Let's take a break. My guest, songwriter, producer, and lecturer Steve Barry has worked with Barry McGuire, Johnny Rivers, Three Dog Night, The Grassroots, The James Gang, Steppenwolf, Jim Croce, Rufus, Steely Dan, Tommy Rowe, The Four Tops, and many more. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Aviator One in a holding pattern until the return of baseball in 2020. Your Las Vegas Aviators AAA affiliate of the Oakland Athletics had an amazing inaugural season at the new Las Vegas ballpark. Great new food choices, a beautiful club level, bark on the berm dog nights, fireworks nights, and family fun nights. Don't miss a minute of the action when the Aviators return to the Las Vegas ballpark in 2020. Season tickets are on sale now at aviatorslv.com. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Welcome back. I'm talking with songwriter, producer, and lecturer Steve Barry. He's worked with Barry McGuire, Johnny Rivers, Three Dog Night, The Grassroots, The James Gang, Steppenwolf, Jim Croce, Rufus, Steely Dan, Tommy Rowe, and The Four Tops, and a lot of them perform in Las Vegas. He's also written or co-written many popular pop songs, which are still performed in Las Vegas today. And you can reach Steve at Steve Barry, that's B-A-R-R-I, Steve Barry at ATT.net. And Steve, when you gave up the writing because of the perceived conflict of interest, although you added a couple of lyrics here and there, did you feel a palpable loss that you were giving that part of it up? And did you ever return to it afterwards? There were some songs that I was involved with as, as far as writing. But for the most part, didn't have much time to sit down and write songs. When I had, sometimes, when I started as a writer, I always had a notebook with, or I would write down all the titles with the big things and, and then different lyrics and whatever. So when I had an idea for something, I would give it to these two writers that I had signed, Michael Price, Dan Walsh and Michael Price. And we would sometimes write some things together, especially when I was working with um, this blues, great blues artist, uh, Bobby Blubland. We wrote some things for him. One, one song that we did with him, a song called Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City, has been in about five or six movies now as a title song of boobies over the last three or four years. And it's earned you know, a fortune for, for the writers. And fortunately, they used my version. And then Jay-Z did a, a, a re-recording of it using the original vocal. So I became, I'm actually co-producer on that. So it turned out, you know, that, that turned out real well. It's amazing how these things that you did so many years ago when we were writing, you know, we thought they were all disposable. 
you know, I, I was so thrilled when we got the, the one verse and one chorus of uh, Secret Agent Man done and that I would never have to deal with that again because I knew it was <laughs> such a silly, you know, such a stupid song. And then when that television show became a hit and then it came on for a second season and Johnny Rivers started calling saying, you know, people are asking me to sing Secret Asia Man, but there's no second verse. I need a second verse. <laughs> so we said, I said, Johnny, if, if we write the second verse and the third verse, would you at least record it? And he said, yeah. So, and that song, you know, to this day, you know, it's like every year it, it gets recorded one way or another, or it's some kind of a, a funny gag. They just used it on the uh, Stephen Colbert show the other, the other night. Um, they did a, a parody of it dealing with, um, called Secret, what was it, Secret Asset Man, having to deal with Donald Trump and whatever. Anyway, it, it's, it's been an incredibly important copyright for me over the years and, and made a lot of money. And I, I thought, you know, once we were done with it, when we were done with it, we thought all of the music we were making would be kind of disposable. But it's like, it's like great songs of the Great American Songbook, which I teach courses on you know, how they're still popular today. Now, those were great songs. Our songs were not always so great. I'm wondering whether when George Gershwin and Cole Porter wrote their songs, did they have in the back of their head the feeling that, or the thought that, these songs are going to endure over decades? I don't know how anybody could at that time, you know, when they write it. I mean, you know, maybe they, they did. But, um, you know, you write a song, and, and if you have a hit with it, and it goes on the radio, and it for that 10 weeks that it's out there, it's the greatest thing. And then once it comes up, but of course, by the time it reaches number one, if, if it does, I've had a few of those, and the company we always would celebrate, I was never happy at those celebrations because I'm always thinking, what's the follow-up going to be? Because I had to, you know, I was in charge of putting out these, of making these records. Um, so, you, you, you know, I don't think anybody ever thinks uh, ahead that, that far, you know, years later that these songs would be you know, so valuable. But from a technical standpoint, because you mentioned that they still are played and they still are heard and groups still perform them, and in today's technology where you can digitize and clean up a record that was maybe not recorded as well as it could have been, but through software you can change it or you can get out the bumps and it, it sounds as if it were brand new again. So that has that advantage as well. Absolutely. Well, the whole, you, you know, a, a lot of the business changed. When I, when I, when I signed, I, at one point I signed at Motown Records. Jay Lasker, who had built, he was like the, the president of Dunhill Records um, after Lou left, and he had taken over Motown Records. When I went to Motown Records, they were losing money. They were here on the West Coast at the time. But what happened was, and one day, some guy came in and said, showed us these new digital, you know, CDs and how things could now sound and whatever. And it's like a light bulb went off. We go back and we do all, get, you know, everybody, oh, the baby boomers have every Motown record. I mean, it's the best catalog in the world. And if we go back to the original masters and are able to put them on a CD, and so you can really hear them now nice and pristine, whatever, I bet we could sell some records. So we did that with the entire catalog, and we could not believe how, how the sales were. So yeah, it, it, uh, the, the technology has a lot to do with the longevity of some of those things. And, and then 
every baby boomer wanted to have, you know, they wanted to have the new CD player and, and this new sound, and so they wanted all these records that they, that they loved, and here they were able to hear them better than they've ever heard them before because the old ones are all scratchy because, you, you know. <laughs> That's true. And now today, everybody's back to, they'd rather have the scratches the vinyl, on vinyl. Yeah, the vinyl so, the scratch. It's yeah. more authentic, I think, is the well, feeling the, the, it. Yeah, the sound, the sound is, is, you know, on vinyl. To me, right. you know, I grew up with it. It's, it's still the best. Are you in touch with some of the groups that you work with, the ones that, for example, perform in Las Vegas? And there's so many. We, I mentioned the Four Tops. Johnny Rivers has performed in Las Vegas. Yeah. I have not been able to nail him for an interview yet, but I'm, I'm working on it. Well, uh, um, you know, I'm still friendly with, with some of them. Uh, Tommy Rowe, um, in particular, was, uh, we remained friendly. He was at our 50th wedding anniversary party. He sang Dizzy for us, which is a record I produced with him. But, you know, honestly, most of the acts that I work with, unfortunately, aren't with us anymore. Duke Ficare of the Four Tops is still with the group, but... Um, you know, Levi and, and the other guys are, are gone. Um, same thing, I work with The Temptations, you know, because they've got the big hit show on Broadway now. But they, um, you know, there's only one remaining original member. No, and, and the, the other acts that I had some, some of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life were, were in Vegas with our artists that were playing there. I mean, they're long stories, but... You know, one had to do with the fact we, at one point, because we had signed the Four Tops and we were having hits with them, and they were a black act that had left Motown, um, we were hoping to also sign Gladys Knight and the Pips, and they were opening for Sammy Davis Jr. And so we went up to see them, and then we were going to meet them and try to sell them on coming with our label. The, the, their manager invited us to come up. And so anyway, for whatever reason, the show ran very long. And uh, we, we were meeting with them, and Sammy Davis came in the room, mad as hell, saying, you know, you guys have to, can't do encores. He says, I've got to, I remember what he said. He says, I've got to do my, you know, my 60 minutes, and if I don't do encores, if I go off the stage too soon, the audience will kill me, and if I stay until late, the, you know, the, the house people, the, you know, the, 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 the hotel casino, is, sure. the is going to kill me, so, so you, you know. Anyway, so he's angry and he's yelling and whatever. And then as he turns to leave, he sees us, you know, sitting around. He said, are you guys here, you know, to try to sign the group? And we said, yeah. He said, boy, if you don't sign them, you're all crazy. The <laughs> so we said, thank you, so Sammy. He came in mad and he ended came up complimenting him. Ended up, you know, as nice as can be. Yeah, he, yeah, he complimented them. That's yeah. great. Of all the groups you work with, was there one, or, or individuals that you work with, was there one that just was... Not impossible per se, but just harder than the rest. And could you share one story about well, one of them? Well, yeah, the mo I always tell people, they always ask me, because when, when we recorded the Four Tops, and you know, we signed them, we recorded them, and we did this album with them, and they had just left Motown, and everybody was saying that you know, radio is not going to play their records, they're not on Motown, people are going to be upset. And here we put out this album, and it goes to number one, and, and we have a number one hit with them. And so every, the world is, is great. Nothing could be better. And then we have an opportunity to, to sign an artist that I absolutely idolize, Dusty Springfield. And I'm thinking, this is going to be, this is, you know, it doesn't get any better now. And, you know, we met with her. Everything went well until we went into the studio. And she just was at a bad time in her career. She felt like she sounded terrible. She couldn't, you know, her voice was awful. Her, her, she would do a demo, just a demo vocal of a song and to learn the song. The demo vocal was better than most singers could ever sing. She was fantastic. 
but we couldn't convince her how good she was. And it was just, you know, I think she was having some kind of a nervous breakdown at the time. So it was a horrible, awful experience that, that at the end, um, you know, the album came out, didn't do very well at all. And I thought, boy, this, you know, uh, she had such a tremendous hit when she was on Atlantic and this record that Jerry Wexler produced with her, um, Dusty in, Me in Memphis, I think it was called. And one day I, I was talking to Jerry Wexler, who produced it, and I said to Jer Jerry, said, uh, I said to Jerry, I said, boy, you know, we had such a tough time with uh, you know, Dusty Springfield. I said, you, you recorded such a great album with her. He says, she was impossible. He said she never, you know, she just wouldn't realize how good she was, you know. And so it was the psychology really, of it, I guess. Yeah, it was sad more than anything else because she's such a great artist. We will leave on a high note, though. Who was the best person that you work with, or the best time you had with someone? I loved working with BB King. I loved working with Bobby Bland, and I loved working with the Four Tops. They were just, just so professional, just great people. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been songwriter, producer, and lecturer Steve Barry, and you can reach him at Steve Barry. That's B A R R I. Steve Barry at att.net. Steve, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Appreciate it. See you Thank next you. time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah, I'll be my Let's do it.